0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Jason Collins. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Community Christian. And I also want to say welcome to all of you and thank you for joining in with us online today. Now, let me ask you a question. You ever done one of those rides at an amusement park or carnival? The ones where they strap you into a seat, they attach this gigantic rubber band to the top, and then they stretch it out as far as it'll go, and then they just let you go? Yeah, just hearing myself describe it that way, it it sounds crazy, but lots of people do it. They love the thrill that they get from it. And now, most of these rides have video cameras attached, and they film your reaction, and then you can buy the video later and keep it forever. Well, I love those videos. In fact, several years ago, I came across one of them on YouTube. It was a mom and a son riding in one of these rides, and it's become like one of my all-time favorites. In fact, uh, I have it for you here. Check it out.
1: Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Yes! I'm falling! Yes! I'm falling! Yes! Yes! I'm so dead!
0: You know, what's weird is I never get tired of watching that video. And you want to know what my favorite part is? It's the mom. I mean, think of it. Here's her little boy sitting right next to her, and he's thinking he's about to die. And what's she doing? She can't stop laughing at him. Now, here's what the mom knew, and it's what you knew, too, when you watched that. That kid's not in danger. He was fully strapped in. Nothing's really going to happen to him. But the truth is, that doesn't matter. At least it doesn't matter to him, because for him, the danger was real. The fear was real. I mean, that kid thought it was all about to go down. He was going to fly out of that thing, and there was nothing he could do about it. And let's be honest, in a strange, sick sort of way, that's what makes it so funny. But you know what? Here's the part that's not so funny. The way that kid felt flying around on that ride is sort of what all of us have been feeling for these past few weeks. It's like one minute life was normal. It's like you got your hand on the wheel or you're calling all the shots. Things are going pretty much like you intend them to go or at least how you kind of expected them to go. And then the next minute, everything changed. And you get hit with the fact that, you know what, I'm not in control anymore. I'm not the one calling the shots. I'm not making things happen. Things are just happening to me. And there's just not much you can do about it. See, most of us pride ourselves on the fact that, for the most part, we have our lives pretty much under control. But lately, that illusion's been destroyed for all of us. That idea that I'm in control of my life, that I make things happen, I suddenly find out, well, that's a myth. And when you do, you realize, maybe some of us realize this for the very first time, I'm not in control. I'm not making stuff happen. Stuff is happening to me. I remember one of the first times I had that feeling. It was my 16th birthday, and it was the day that I got my driver's license. And I, was, I went that morning, got my driver's license, and, and then I went on my very first real date that night. I went and I picked up my girlfriend in my parents' car, and I was taking her to some formal dance that we were going to at school. And on this particular night, it was raining. Now you could probably already tell where this whole thing is headed, so I'll make the long story short. I'm driving on a four-lane highway and uh, I'm in the right lane, there's a car beside me and I need to get over in the left-hand turning lane and I could either speed up or slow down to get past this car and of course I'm 16, so I sped up. I cut in front of the car, I got all the way into the turning lane and all of a sudden I look up and there's a red light and there's cars stopped at the red light and I have to slow down really, really fast. So. I slam on the brakes, and for the first time in my driving life, I had almost no control over that car. The best thing I could do was just veer off toward the median and hope to miss the car, and luckily, I did. I missed the car. I I ran off the road a little bit, but as you can imagine, my girlfriend was not at all impressed. And the guy that I cut off, he wasn't impressed either because he came around me after the red light, and he flipped me off. Yeah, I looked like a real stud that night. I remember another instance several years ago, and it was again in traffic. I'm sitting at a red light and waiting for it to change. My wife and daughter are in the car with me. Uh, there's a car in front of me, car behind me. I'm just sitting at the light waiting, and as this is going on, I see an accident happen right in front of me. A truck pulls in front of a car. They collide, and then the truck starts spinning out of control, and he's heading towards me. But again, I, I couldn't move. I couldn't back up. I couldn't go forward. I couldn't go anywhere. There was nowhere to go. All I could do was just watch this accident happen and hope that we were going to be okay. And again, fortunately, we were. Uh, The truck did hit us, but it just clipped the front of our car. Everybody was fine. But it was a feeling of being out of control. But then there's the moment in my life that I probably felt more out of control than I ever have before. It was 18 years ago. In fact, this week, 18 years ago. My wife was just days away from giving birth to our first child, our son. We had everything ready. Everything was under control. We had the nursery, the crib, the diapers. Our house was baby-proofed. Everything a parent needs to raise a kid was just like it should be, under control. Until that one moment when the doctor looks at us and says, I'm so sorry. And we go from controlling everything to controlling nothing. You know, if I was preaching this message to you about six weeks ago, I would have said, now some of you know what it feels like to be out of control. (laughs) But today, I can safely say all of us know what it feels like. In fact, I was just saying to someone the other day, this COVID-19 crisis is the first event in my lifetime, I think, that has had some direct effect on every person on the planet. It's almost like it's the very first truly universal experience and In some way or another, that's true. It's ripped control away from all of us in some area of our lives. See, we're so used to controlling our lives or our daily routines, our jobs, our education, our trips to the grocery store, our health, but not anymore. And for many of us, this has become what we're calling now the new normal. And for a lot of us, it's starting to set in, and we're starting to think, you know, the ending that I had planned out for my story maybe that's not going to be quite the ending that i wind up with the the thing i thought was happening throughout my story maybe that thing is not going to happen see most of us set out in life we usually start out around our teens and 20s and we start to have this idea of the general direction our lives are going to take we think the whole th- thing through we think we know where we'd like our story to eventually wind up and then something happens something that sends life off into this unexpected detour. Now, of course, today we're talking about global pandemics and lockdowns and social distancing, but this whole detour away from your plans, that happens to almost everyone at some point along the way in life. Things inevitably happen in your life and in mine to destroy something that I'll just call the myth of control. In fact, here's what I mean. Every one of us walks around every day and we have this idea that life is a cause and effect kind of deal, right? In other words, I can control some circumstances that exist around me by just taking certain actions that I know will get me the reactions that I want. So I do things that I know will produce the kind of reactions I want. I just make choices that I think will bring me the right solutions or the right results. And as long as I keep making those choices, the ones that bring me my desired results, then I can pretty much control what happens in my life. And I'll just say to a degree, that's true. I mean, there is a definite cause and effect kind of reaction going on in life, and I can pretty much control that. I mean, I would even say it's a good thing for you and I to live with that sort of mindset. Otherwise, I think it might drive us a little bit insane. You need to have some sort of sense that I have a say over my own destiny. And again, in a lot of ways, we do. But at the heart of it all, Control, it's a myth. I mean, we can live with the sense that we control our lives, but in reality, our lives can change in less than a moment. There are circumstances that I can control, but most of the circumstances of life, I can't. Life, for the most part, is not so much about me making things happen as much as it is things happening to me and me deciding how to react to them. So here's the issue I want us to deal with today. What do you do when the myth of control comes crashing in on you like it has for many of us watching this right now? What do you do when things start happening all around you that prove to you you're not in control? Well, to get where we need to go today on this, I want us to look at a moment from the life of Jesus. Now, more accurately, this is actually a moment from the life of the disciples or Jesus' earliest followers. See. This is one of those moments in the life of Jesus' followers that I'll tell you, they remembered this for a long, long time. See, these guys had spent three years with Jesus, and if you had come up to them and, and, and asked them after those three years were over and said, hey, tell me what your top memories of being with Jesus was, well, this one would have been right there on the list. And the reason I know that's true is because when they did sit down and write their memories about what uh, they experienced with Jesus, this story ends up being in three out of the four accounts that we have. See, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're simply written down recollections from the guys and and the the men and women who hung around with Jesus. And the first three of those accounts all contain this story we're going to look at today. Now, we're going to read it from Mark's account, which is in uh, chapter 4, verse 35. He says it this way. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and they started out, leaving the crowd behind, although other boats followed. So Jesus and his disciples, they had been working all day. There had been these large crowds following them around. So Jesus decides, hey, it's, it's, it's enough for today. We're going to knock off, and we're going we're to go somewhere else. So he tells his disciples, hey, let's hop in these boats, and let's sail over to the other side of the water. Now, we know that these boats, they're not very big because it takes several boats to fit them all in, but it's not a big deal. It should not be a big deal for these guys to do this because this trip is going to be simple for a couple of reasons. One, they weren't going to go that far most likely the trip was gonna be a few miles at most. And two, a lot of these guys are fishermen. They know this lake like the back of their hand. They fished it their whole lives, so they go out onto the water. And here's what Mark says happens next. A fierce storm came up. High waves are breaking into the boat, and it begins to fill with water. Now the Sea of Galilee, where they're sailing right now, it is a pretty large body of water but it's situated in between a group of mountains. Now from time to time, the wind would sweep down over the mountain into the valley and it would stir up these storms and they were really hard to predict. And sometimes these storms that developed would come in quickly and they'd be pretty violent. Uh, We know now that the waves in some of these storms could get up to as high as seven feet. And again, as I said before, these aren't huge boats. So a seven foot wave is enough to put some water in the boat and start bringing the boat down. But again, no problem. These are seasoned fishermen. They've dealt with these storms before. And I'll tell you this, Jesus isn't worried about the storm. He's not worried at all because, well, look at the next verse. It says this, Jesus is sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Now, I don't know about you, I find that hilarious. Because again, remember, these boats aren't very big. They're really small. It's not like Jesus is in a yacht where there's a suite down below and he can go below deck and hop in bed and shut the windows and the doors and be insulated from all this. No, Jesus is probably not completely sheltered from the elements of this storm that's going on right now. He's no doubt within shouting distance of the guys who are trying to sail this boat. And the waves could be as high as seven feet because the boat's starting to take on water. The disciples, they're working their tails off. They're trying to sail in this weather, and Jesus is just sitting over there with a pillow on his head, and he's snoozing. So the disciples wake him up, and they shout to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? To which I'm thinking, no, fellas, he doesn't care. He's sleeping. That might give you a little hint. But in all seriousness, the fact of this situation that they're in right now is this. The disciples most likely are not going to drown. Now again, unless this is an unusually violent storm, they've probably seen this before. Now there's no way for me to know this for sure. This is my opinion. But it is possible that this question that they just asked Jesus, don't you care? It's an overreaction. They're frustrated and they're scared in the moment that they find themselves in. And and, and you know what that's like, right? You know how we exaggerate things when we're scared? For instance, something goes wrong and you weren't expecting it. You end up with this whole new set of problems and challenges in your life. And then somebody comes along and you get the sense that that person that, that's with you, they don't seem to appreciate the gravity of your situation the way you do. And so to get them to respond to you, you make the situation look worse than it is. Or you just overreact to try to make them think that it's worse than it is so that they'll react the way you want them to. Like, for example, and, and I'll just make one up. Let's say your kid is having cereal at the breakfast table. They spill their milk all over the floor and the entire bowl of Cheerios goes into the floor and you get down on your hands and knees to clean that up. Your wife comes into the room and she just walks right by you. And all of a sudden you look up and and it doesn't seem like she even cares. And so here you are on your hands and knees and you say something brilliant like, Honey, are you really going to walk by me while I'm neck deep down here in Cheerios? Don't you care about the upbringing of our children? Don't you care about the cleanliness of our home? But I'm sure none of you have ever done that. I know I've never done that. I don't know where that illustration came from. I just made that up. But anyway, regardless of what's going on, the disciples obviously are trying to get Jesus to react to them. And they probably are pretty scared. In fact, they might even truly believe that their lives are in danger. And they most certainly are caught in a moment where they realize with crystal clarity, I'm not in control. This is not turning out at all like I'd planned. I mean, they're thinking... Man, we got in this boat thinking we're going to travel a couple of miles, land this thing without incident. It's going to be easy. But now here we are. We're stuck out in the middle of a huge lake. We're shoveling buckets of water, trying to keep this ship from going down. And here we got this holy man on the other side of the boat with his head on a pillow snoring. So they wake Jesus up. Now, at this point, there's no doubt Jesus fully appreciates the situation that the disciples are in. And whether they're exaggerating the danger, trying to get a reaction, or whether the fear is legitimate, again, we really don't know. But it doesn't seem to matter to Jesus. Because either way, we know the disciples feel that they don't have any way to control what's happening to them. So Jesus decides, I'll do something. So when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped. It was, a, it was a great calm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, if you've ever heard this story or if you've ever read this story in your Bible before, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but Jesus performs this miracle. And he does it in such a way as to let his disciples know for sure that it wasn't just a coincidence that this storm quit when he woke up and, second of all, that Jesus possessed full control over the situation. In fact, notice when Jesus speaks to them. When he speaks for the first time and he says, silence, be still, not only does the storm and the wind stop, do you see the waves? actually go from being several feet high? It says a great calm came over them. Can you imagine the waves going to be as smooth as glass? I want you to think about that. In fact, think about it this way. Whenever you're in one of those wave pools, like at at a water park, you ever been in one of those? One of those pools where they use the machine to make the waves and it feels like the ocean. And then all of a sudden they turn the machine off. What happens to the waves? Do the waves immediately stop? No, of course not. Because we all know that when water gets stirred up, it takes several minutes for the waves to actually calm down. Because it's impossible to control an entire body of water and make water go from rough to calm instantly. But Jesus spoke three words and he took the energy within that water out and it instantly went calm and it totally sat still. (laughs) See, Jesus was sending a message and the message was clear. I know you guys think the storm's in control. I know you thought the waves were going to rule the day. But don't you forget who's sleeping in your boat. Jesus was proving to his followers, there is no force or situation or problem that he is not in complete control over. And notice what the disciples say. As soon as they realize they're not in control and the waves aren't in control, but that Jesus was in control. The disciples, they take their focus away from their problems, away from their limitations to handle the situation, and they start to focus on who Jesus is. They say, who is this guy? He can control nature. I mean, what's more uncontrollable than nature? And this guy, he has power over it. Who is he? And see, that's the reason I chose this story for us to focus on today, because of that question, the one the disciples were left with. Because here's what I can almost guess you were thinking when I first started talking about control. I'll bet every one of you knew, oh, by the end of this message, he's going to tell us God's in control of the virus and God's in control of the economy and every other situation in our lives. And what we need to just do is just trust him. Well, that is what I'm saying. And I do believe that's the point that Jesus wanted us to get when he calmed the storm and the waves in this story. But here's the problem. I can tell you that God is in control all day long. I can tell you that you ought to trust God through this situation and every situation that you find yourself in in life. And none of it matters. See, just knowing that God is in control, it will not change a thing about how you handle your new normal. But there is something that I believe can actually change everything. There's a great theologian, his name is A.W. Tozer, and once he wrote this, he said, the most portentous fact about any man or any person is not what he or she at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. In fact, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to this question, what comes to your mind when you think about God, we might be able to predict with certainty the spiritual future. Of that person. In other words, how you think about God, that determines what you become. That internal picture in your imagination that you have of God, that determines how you see everything else in your life. And in turn, it affects how you react to everything in your life. So when a preacher like me stands in front of you and tells you that God is in control, well, depending on how you seek God, that information will either bring you tremendous peace or debilitating fear. So, the million-dollar question is this. What do you think about when you think about God? How do you see Him? Does knowing that God is in control of your life make you more fearful? Or does it bring you peace? Well, in case it doesn't bring you a whole lot of peace, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever stopped to consider who God really is? Or what God's capable of? Have you ever asked the question, just like the disciples did in the boat that day, who is this God? The God who can calm storms? The God who claims to have control over my life? See, when it comes to our out of control problems, we often make the mistake of thinking about God just like we think about everything else. We think about God in four dimensional terms. Because that's what we live in. That's where we are. And we forget God is so much more complex than that. See, you and I, we're limited. You can only be in one place at one time. You can't travel into the past. You can't go into your future. There's no way for you or me to escape the time we're living in right now or the space we're taking up right now. Time and space, they're these limited creations, and we just exist inside of those creations. It's like we're on the inside looking out. But God, God is on the outside looking in. God's all around us all the time. He's right before you. He's right after you. He's right ahead of you. He is right behind you. God has no dimensional limitations. When you start to see God in those terms, it'll change your outlook on life and your problems. Think of it this way. When really smart people talk to us about time and space dimensions, they, they refer to them many times as a degree of freedom. All that means is this. The time and the space that you occupy is just a way you can move. The number of dimensions you live in determines what and what you can do and what's possible and what's not possible for you. So the more dimensions you have, The more freedom you have. For example, you can jump over a four-dimensional wall if you have five dimensions of space. You can untie a seven-dimensional knot if you have eight dimensions of space. Whenever you add a dimension in time or space, you open up a new possibility. It's like this. The image that you're watching of me right now on this screen, this image exists in two dimensions. I mean, it's it's inside of a little box that you're watching on a screen, and I can move horizontally back and forth, or I can move up and down vertically across this screen, but essentially I'm just stuck inside this little box. But now imagine I could add a third dimension to this. That would mean that I'd literally have the freedom to reach out and enter into the space that you're watching this in right now. Now I don't know, maybe that's a bad example because I'm starting to have visions of a horror movie I once saw, so maybe that's not a good thing. But anyway, here's the point I'm making. God, He's what we call omnidimensional. He operates in an infinite number of dimensions all at the same time. So, God literally has no limitations on what he can do, where he can go, or what he can handle. I mean, think about it this way. How else do you think God listens to every prayer ever prayed simultaneously all around the world? It's because he's not limited to time and space. And I know that's mind-blowing to even think about. It's something our minds can't comprehend. Here's something else to think about. God has the ability to plan for every circumstance that you've ever encountered in, in your life and every circumstance ever encountered in all of history. Here's what that means. I'll give an example. In 1997, IBM designed a computer. They called it Deep Blue. It was equipped with 32 processing engines, and it was programmed to do one thing, to play chess. Deep Blue had the ability to calculate 200 million chess moves in a second. And so they took this computer and they placed it against The greatest chess player of that day, a grand master chess player, his name was Gary Kasparov, and this guy played against this computer, Deep Blue, and the computer won. Now I want you to think about something. How hard is it for you and me sometimes to make 50-50 choices? True-false, right or left, vanilla or chocolate. I mean, just easy, 50-50 choices. That's difficult for us sometimes. Now imagine you had to consider 200 million choices in a split second. Well you can't do it, because that's unimaginable for you. But that ability doesn't even scratch the surface of what God can do. I mean, just think of your life like a chess game and be like you're a pawn on the board, and God is the grand Master. And you and I, we have no idea what the next move ought to be. We don't even know the next 10 moves, much less the next five moves. We don't know. But God. He's already thought through the next 200 million moves that you or your life can take. And he has every possible ending to your life already in his mind. And he knows every decision that you could possibly make. He knows how that decision is going to affect the next decision and the next 500 decisions. You just, you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything without God already being there and having a way for you to come through it. See, In a world like ours that's so out of control, like the one we're living in right now, we have to begin to ask the same question the disciples asked. Who is this God? Who is this God who can sleep peacefully with his head on a cushion inside of a boat that's being tossed by a storm? Who is this God who can stand up and speak three words and stop wind and waves in an instant? Who is this God who wasn't shocked, wasn't surprised, wasn't caught off guard when COVID-19 began to spread in our world? Who is this God who stands outside of time and space, who isn't limited in what he can see or what he can do? Well, I want you to listen for the answer to those questions in the words of this next song.
1: When waters rise all around, standing it-